I am incredibly thrilled to be interviewing um, not just a friend, uh, not just your average CEO of a $25 billion company, um, such an incredible, unique person that I feel like I'm sharing with you today because as I've gotten to know Bill McDermott, the CEO of SAP, not just one of the largest software companies in the world, but one of the largest companies with heart. Heart that extends very uniquely beyond just the traditional thinking about business. This is a company with $25 billion in sales, 85,000 employees, and it serves 97% of the health science and life science market. This is truly an extraordinary company led by an extraordinary man and we're gonna have a really nice, interesting conversation today. And we're gonna open it up to questions. So think about, as we're talking, questions you might have for Bill McDermott. Um, a friend, a CEO, and a mentor. Um, please join me in welcoming Bill McDermott, CEO of SAP. Thank you, I'll sit there. Hey, everybody. How you all doing? I wanted to do step back for a second. You know, everybody knows SAP. Right. Um, but I don't know how many people know Bill McDermott and truly who you are and how you grew up. And there's a book that Bill wrote uh, a year or two ago that I was reading and I started reading it and saying like, this is just not your typical CEO. Um, you're really an entrepreneur be that became a CEO. Um, but Bill, take us back a little bit. Who is Bill McDermott? Well, in the book, Winner's Dream, uh, I, I tell about the early days, uh, Stephen, I guess the, the, the number one story is the delicatessen. Um, because I was a teenage entrepreneur and I started my own business when I was 16. And at that time, I had to take out a loan. And I borrowed 5,500 notes and I had to pay it back with $7,000 with interest. And if I didn't pay it back, they took the store away. And Bill McDermott, at his heart, is a guy that connects with humans. I love the people. And in that era, I had to figure out who my customer was. And basically, there were three types of customers. There were senior citizens, um, there were blue collar workers like my dad, and then there were high school kids that I had to get to walk a block and a half past 7-Eleven to my little store. And the thing I think is kind of interesting is one, I just tell you a story about a CRM system that really worked. You know what my CRM system was? In what year? This is uh, in the 1970s, like 77. My CRM system was looking out the window and knowing my customer. <laughs> and I knew that blue collar worker like my dad was rich on Friday night, but they were broke by Saturday morning. So we had to give them credit, and we did. And then the kids, we had to get them to walk a block and a half past 7-Eleven to my store. And one day I go down there and I see 40 kids online waiting to get in the store and only four kids in the store. And I'm like, why are you all out here when there's a big store in there? Well, they think we're going to take things. Don't worry about all that. Follow me to my store. And at that time, I built a video game room with Asteroids and Pac-Man. And in those days, you actually had to put quarters in a machine to play a game. Remember that? A couple people here do. <laughs> and I let the kids in 40 at a time play video games. And one of the kids, to underscore this strategy, said, Bill, when we want to have good food, be treated with respect, and play video games, we come to your store. 
and when we want to steal stuff, we go to 7-Eleven. <laughs> so the big thing is, you know, the little one has to do what the big one is either unwilling to do or structurally unable to do. And my whole thing was connecting at a very human and personal level with that consumer. And that's what made that business go. And I still think that way today. I thought one of the things you wrote about in the book was how you extended credit on, to all the people on those Friday nights of the pay. They can, they can ex you kind of keep tabs throughout the week and then kind of let them pay on Fridays? Exactly, yeah. And, and then there was, you know, like people like senior citizens. You know, you have to be on your toes. The senior citizens, what I learned fast is none of my co competitors delivered. And yet, give me one senior citizen you know that wouldn't prefer to have something delivered to their home. So you gotta constantly be thinking about that beautiful space that no one else is playing in that you can own. And keep it simple. So how did that translate into your trajectory from the delicatessen to being the CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world? Well, you gotta start somewhere, and after I had you know, traded in three part-time jobs for the deli, I had put myself through college, and we lived in a 1,100 square foot house in Amityville, Long Island, on the Great South Bay. And what was kind of interesting is every time there was a northeast storm or a really hard rain, the house flooded. And unfortunately, the day I was going from my first job at 21, I'm moving out of the deli now. Time to move on. I had my $99 suit from the mall. I was ready to go. Unfortunately, the house had four and a half foot of water in the downstairs, it had flooded. So my brother grabs me on the fifth step from the bottom, puts me on his shoulder, takes me in my dad's car. My dad drives me to Long Island Railroad. And I get there, as I'm getting out of the car, I tell my father, I guarantee you I'm coming home tonight with my employee badge in my pocket. I was going to interview with Xerox. So here I am, this Long Island kid. I get to Manhattan after reading the annual report about this CEO who was reinventing the company on total quality management. By the time I got to New York, I was convinced I could be the next David Kearns, who was the CEO of the company. I get into the hiring center at Top of the Sixes in Manhattan, and there's all these beautiful young people, beautifully dressed, groomed to the nines. They just came from areas that were foreign to me, like Princeton, New Jersey, and Greenwich, Connecticut, you know what I mean? And I'm like, whoa, I'm in another planet here. And I start getting a little nervous. I'm like, I might have overshot it a little bit with my father, you know? But then I started talking to people. I said, I can panic if I want to, or I can just do what I do every day. I talk to 500 people a day. They come in and out of the store, and I started asking them, hey, what are you in here for? What are you trying to get done? What's your goal? What's on your mind? And they would just tell me, well, I'm playing the field, I'm interviewing at Goldman and Merrill and IBM and all this stuff. And that was the moment I knew it was my day because I knew exactly why I was there. I was there to get my dream job. And that gave me all the confidence that I needed. But I have to tell you, you have to execute. I get to my last interview, which was like the eighth one of the day. I'm at 9 West 57th. I'm outside the big boss's office, and I look over his shoulder at Central Park. And I'm like, this is not an interview, man. This is a fight for my life. Because that is somewhere between heaven and opportunity. 
And if I can get my job today, I'm going to be somebody. We get to the end of this great interview, and the guy says to me, his name is Emerson Fullwood, I tell the story in the book, Winner's Dream. He said, um, hey Bill, great interview, really appreciate it. HR is gonna get in touch with you in the next couple of weeks. You've heard that one a couple of times? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, Mr. Fullwood, I don't think you completely understand the situation, sir. And he kind of tilts his head a little bit like, what's this kid up to? I said, I haven't broken a promise to my dad in 21 years, and I guaranteed him I'm coming home tonight with my employee badge in my pocket. I don't say anything. Now he really tilts his head. <laughs> and he basically said, Bill McDermott, as long as you haven't committed any crimes, you're hired. And I said, well, Mr. Fullwood, I certainly haven't committed any crimes. Are you sure? Does that mean I'm hired? He goes, yes, it does. And then, of course, I get up and walk around, pick him up, carry him around a little bit, put him down safely, and then I get to the elevator, go down to Fifth, uh, to, um, Fifth Avenue and 57th Street, and I go to the Bun and Burger on the corner, put quarters in the phone, and I dial up my mom and dad. You actually had to use a phone with quarters then, too. And my mom and dad get on, and I said, uh, I got great news for you. We're celebrating tonight. Break out the core bell. I got the job. <laughs> now, in San Francisco, I don't know how many people actually drink Corbell. It's really bad. <laughs> so it was always, it was always a, a fight, but it was always a fight with like excitement and passion and dreams. It, it sounds very consistent with the mindset that we talk about, that we know entrepreneurs and partners of entrepreneurs and everybody needs, if we're going to look out, over the next 25 years in transform healthcare. It seems like you always had that mindset, yeah. that transformational mindset that just was confident and ambitious, long-term committed, and just thinking about making it happen. Yeah, just want to win and just want to be somebody. You know, I remember one day, you know, after getting you my first job, I'm traveling with a guy who is like the really experienced professional. And I get out of training and I'm his sidekick. It's 95 degrees in Manhattan. I'm carrying a typewriter in one hand, a briefcase in the other, and a copier on my back. So this is the part where it's more than just a dream. You actually gotta do something. We get a lead, we go to a brownstone, the elevator's out, we walk up four flights of stairs in that $99 suit, and the sweat's trickling down my cheeks. I get to the top, the door is open, and there she is the CEO of this little company, the Chanel suit working, everything perfect, and I'm having a moment. And we look at each other, and then all of a sudden, this giant cat jumps on my shoulder. I'm like, this isn't good. The nails are going through the suit, and I'm like, I know the skin will heal after a while, but this nails coming back outside the suit isn't really feeling too promising. So I dropped the briefcase, and. Uh, the typewriter, and I held the cat. Said, Good kitty. Loved the kitty. Beautiful kitty. And she goes, you love animals, don't you? And I said, especially cats. <laughs> and I said, I tell you, Garfield has nothing on your cat. Nope. <laughs> and you know, we get to this magic moment where the senior sales guy's like, hey Bill, aren't you going to plug that in the wall and do a demo, kid? And I ask her, I'm like, do you need to see a demonstration? Because the copy machine, you plug it in the wall, it's got a green button, it says start, it makes a copy. 
And the electronic typewriter, you plug it in a wall and it's faster than that IBM one over there and you just type the way you always do. Do you need to see a demonstration? She said, oh no, honey, I'll take two. You know, I never repeated this, but we get down to the bottom after that meeting is over and the guy that I was traveling with said to me, Bill, you're either going to be the CEO of Xerox someday or you're going to go to jail. You know, I never repeated this publicly, but years later I actually got a call. I was in Puerto Rico and he asked me to be a character witness because he was arrested in a bar in Manhattan in a cocaine sting. So, um, you can't make this stuff up, you know. It's, it's been that kind of life, you know. Um, so fast forward from, from each of these moments, the cat, and I got to tell you, I uh, hadn't heard that one before. The, the fast forward to, you're now the CEO of SAP. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, I don't think too many entrepreneurs think about SAP, right? It's one of those companies that most entrepreneurs think, you know, a lot of money costs a lot of money. So maybe outside of the, of the thinking of startups and entrepreneurs, how do you become this CEO has all this entrepreneurial drive that didn't get lost and this yeah. mindset that didn't get lost along your way from Xerox yeah. to SAP and then all the way to the top of SAP? Right. Well, the thing that I always wanted to do is um, I realized at some point that it was much more fun to lead a team of people to achieve great things than to just be an individual contributor where I drove my own agenda. And so the leadership thing started when I was 24 and I worked my way up in Xerox and other companies like Siebel and Gartner Group before coming to SAP and just had been into many different movies where the whole idea was really building the team on a great vision and the vision always has to have a high purpose. People don't get excited by grow 25% and give me better margins and we'll get a higher stock price. They basically fall asleep unless they have a lot of shares and that's about five people in the company. So, you know, we decided that helping the world to run better, which was very authentic to what we do and improving people's lives would be the driving cause behind everything we do. So if it didn't help the world run better and it didn't improve people's lives, it didn't make the short list of things to do. And we basically built the whole strategy of the company on that premise. And as a result, the joy that I get from the work is actually in enabling those 80 plus thousand people to get inspired about driving an agenda. Not an agenda just for the company, not an agenda just for shareholder value, but to see themselves in a bigger picture, something that's really making a difference. Um, that has been the driving force behind why I think um, SAP is an interesting company um, and why I think the work that we do is interesting. And it's funny because when I first started at SAP in 2002, I had a young entrepreneur working for uh, a company say to me, Bill, you know, SAP is big, it's complex, and it's expensive. And I said, huh, I was completely unaware that it was your intent to stay small. And um, he basically said, what do you mean? I said, because small companies become mid-sized companies that become large companies. And what we have to do is get you there. And that, in a certain sense, is kind of where we're at even in the healthcare story. It's like, how do we get lots of startups there. And that's one moment where I do want to say credit to you, Stephen, and also Howard, 
uh, your brother, um, a great friend of mine, as you are a great friend of mine, because I believe that Startup Health is an unbelievable opportunity, not just for SAP to purport ourselves with a platform to drive value for SAP, but more importantly, to create a network effect, an ecosystem effect, where lots of small entrepreneurial companies can build applications on the SAP platform and fulfill their dreams. Because one of the things I've learned about small companies is they're full of, full of great ideas. But globalization, coverage models, integrating into big ecosystems, driving value in ways that they can afford to get the value out there is pretty important. Um, so one of the things we did is we built a software development kit, for example, with Apple, where we could take a healthcare app from an entrepreneurial company and start up health, put that immediately in the cloud, put it on the SAP platform, and drive all kinds of sales and all kinds of economic value. Is it just for SAP? No, because the companies in this ecosystem get to fulfill their dreams and they get to a place they could not have gotten to otherwise. If that's not the case, then we won't be successful. If that is the case, we're going to do some great things together. So before we dig into the business side, I, you know, one of the things, Jerry Levin, our chairman, has for the last almost decade drilled into my head the power of when you dig back behind whatever business you're hearing about um, is an entrepreneur that had something happen. Yeah. They experienced something, saw something that mm -hmm. if they were self-aware enough, yes. transformed them. And there's not an entrepreneur in Startup Health. There's 180 companies now in Startup Health from 17 different countries. We've had 4,500 companies apply to Startup Health. And when we meet the entrepreneurs, right. inevitably you get to their story. And when you hear their story, you can get a sense of their commitment level. You get a sense of, is this a business idea to make a buck? Or is it actually something they are passionate about beyond the business? Right. And um, I think when you start to realize that everyone in this room has a story, look how many people are here, Bill. It's awesome. Um, everyone has a story with why they're committed like we are to transforming healthcare over the next 25 years. Why is it so important to you? Well, it's an interesting thing. You know, I went through a personal experience that I think really got me fired up about healthcare. I got hurt um, July 2nd of 2000, and I guess it would be 2015 now. And it was a very serious injury. And in fact, it almost cost me my life. And I'll never forget, you know, going through this experience where, you know, you're really hurt, you're all alone. And, you know, your mind is on one hand saying, you know, lay down, go to sleep. You know, it's going to get a lot harder on you if you decide to get up. And your will is basically saying, you know, you've got unbelievable family, uh, 85,000 people at work that care a lot about you, you care about, a lot about them, and your story isn't done. So you got to find a way to get up, get out, and get on with it. But in my case, that would not have been possible if I could not have made it outside this house and crawled to a curb and had some kind person call 911 and had first responders get there and get me to the emergency room and do amazing things so the first responders, the nurses, the doctors, the surgeons, um, the unbelievable ecosystem of care and love that you get. And the system always 
gets a lot of low marks for some reason. And I think it's really technology in its orientation. I'll get to that in a minute. Because the human beings are the salt of the earth. And without them, air wouldn't be here today. And certainly, I wouldn't be feeling as good as I do today, because I feel better than I ever did. And I owe it so much uh, to them. But what I learned going through the healthcare process was you have to manage data and information. You have to have collaboration because there's so many different departments and so many different people that touch you and you're constantly repeating the same story over and over again. You're constantly filling out the same forms over and over again. You're constantly seeing the smartest people in the world that share information through voice and text and they're not even keying anything into a system. And yet when you get to the next smart person in the value chain, they don't even know what the last smart person did unless they're buddies and they phone each other and text each other and send each other pictures and everything else. And I just said to myself, we can do a lot better than this. Let's give the people that are the best salt of the earth people in the world better technology, um, better ways of doing things, and let's stop letting all the bureaucracy and the nonsense stand in the way. So we made a bold move when I came off my injury. My first meeting coming off that July injury was like in September in the United States. And I basically said, we're not going after money here. We're going after doing the right thing. We had 97% of the life sciences and pharma companies running us. We have 12,000 healthcare institutions around the world. But we were kind of quiet in healthcare. And, and then I said, you know, what, what permission do we have to make a difference? And, you know, we have company, uh, actually institutions like NCT in Germany that are um, sequencing the human genome in, in seconds and milliseconds now, where it used to take weeks and months and all the other stuff. And, you know, then we do clinical trials with Charité Hospital, and we started working with ASCO on cancer link applications to really get after this demon called cancer and beat it back. And people said to me, Bill, this is a long, drawn-out affair here. I mean, we're used to going after an industry and making money and scaling it and growing it and doing great. This is a, a lot of sunk cost. And I said, well, would we be true to helping the world run better and improving people's lives if we were not to participate in the industry where the most GDP is tied up, the most spend is tied up, the most complexity is tied up, and the highest ability to help and save human lives. Would, would that be in character with that original vision that we said in 2010 when I became CEO? And that's when people said, no, it would not. And then I said, then we shall go for it with everything we have. Which is why we took the development organization the whole, and, and all the engineers. And then we said we have to have a go-to-market organization, and we divisionalized it across the company. From end to end, we have a healthcare business, a business within the business. And that enabled us to unleash and, and think and get free with our ideas and what we could do to make a difference. And it seems to be um, taking effect. That's an incredible story, what led you to this. So today, what becomes not just the framework for this for you, right. but I think that's a terrific lead into something that we discovered you know, as we got to know each other was we have very similar visions for what it's going to take to transform healthcare, and that yeah. together we need to work. 
not just as individual organizations, nor just as businesses, right. but as people behind these organizations. And perhaps yeah. you want to describe our exciting new partnership. Yeah, well, I think, you know, first of all, why are we here? Like, really, what is our deal? And I think you have to have certain things that you do as a leader, as a person that defines you. And the true measure of a leader is not one who takes from the world, but it's truly one that finds unique and authentic ways of giving everything you have back to the world. And it comes back to you a hundredfold. So it is a virtuous cycle. The idea of Startup Health, and thank you very much, Stephen, for your leadership, is the idea that we have immense assets. You know, we have an in-memory database platform called HANA which is fundamentally going to change the way data is managed in enterprises all over the world. So we have an asset. We have an ERP system that does all the things from clinical to billing and capturing structured and unstructured data and all the things. And you can put it in a cloud and you can write an application and you can immediately partner with us and get going. Get your business going. And the financial um, sharing of this will be extremely attractive to the entrepreneurs. It's designed for you because we're not trying to take, we're trying to give. And we think if we both go into this with a mutual understanding that your application, your innovation, your idea on a bulletproof, tried and true global platform can in fact expand the virtue of your idea of what you're trying to do to help the world run better and improve people's lives. So, with Startup Health, we have made the investment to go all in. We have made the investment to help you find Stephen and Startup Health. As a result, once we get partners that want to go with us, we don't have all the ideas. We take your idea. We think about it. How can we do this? How can we work together? The technology's there. And once we do, we have a revenue sharing arrangement. You put your innovation on this platform, we team up, and we go to market, and we start getting stuff done. And everybody will financially be better off for it, so don't worry about that. It's a good deal. And then I think in the end, what we can do is basically say we have not so much just in the quantity of the applications, but in the quality of the applications. We have the best health platform in the world to solve some of the more complex, difficult to get at issues that could have never existed if we didn't come to San Francisco, sit on this stage today, and make a bold move that it's time. Today marks the moment where it's time. It's time to get started. It's time to get off the ground. It's time to believe that it's possible. And it's time to start working together. And thanks to the leadership. Thank you. And thanks to the leadership of Stephen Krein, um, and I think Thomas Lohr and other very high caring professionals at SAP, um, we're all in. I mean, all of our chips are in the middle of the table, and we're ready to get going. Well, we're, we're honored to be, um, to be your partner, and we're also honored to have you as one of our partners, because what I described a little earlier today is that this transformation that we're talking about, that everyone is embarking on, over the next 25 years, no one can do it alone. Right. But we know the mindset 
of the entrepreneurs that are needed. We know the mindset of the startups that are needed. But most importantly, as part of that, the kinds of partners these entrepreneurs need. And the number one mindset is CEO urgency. And one of our criteria in every partnership that we will ever announce for literally the rest of time, as it always has been, is we only partner with organizations at the top, with the CEO down, and make sure that the commitment to transform healthcare is not only supported at the top, yeah. but is as long-term and focused as we are. So we are incredibly honored, thank and you, thank you so much for helping make it happen so quickly. And being able to bring to entrepreneurs enterprise class platform that is literally not going to cost a thing yeah. and something that's going to help everybody here transform healthcare. Yeah, and, and I think you asked a beautiful question earlier, like what gave me that spark, you know? And I think if, uh, you know, we're all honest, we have been in various stages of uh, healthcare involvement. And we've lost things we've loved, we've fought for things like our own lives in some cases, we know people that have. There's nothing that touches the human soul more than your health. And it's like people spend their whole life trying to, you know, hit billion dollar targets. And you know what? Even if they do, they can't buy one second of time with it. And that's why I really keep going back to saying, I hope that you're ready because we got to get going. And it's time. And if all the things that I would just like to um, let you know is that whatever we can do to help you and to help the entrepreneurs in this room and the dreamers that want to win, um, I don't have a, a more important goal. So if you can help me help you and we can all do that for each other, I think we're going to be in good shape. That's for all of you guys. Thank you. Thank you. I think, do we, we have time for one or two questions? That'd be great. Yay? Okay, and we've got some books to give away. Yeah, Bill right. McDermott's the incredible book, by the way, and audio book. I listen. He yeah, reads the audio book. That accent in an audio book, <laughs> unbelievably entertaining. And literally, I, I stopped reading and just listening because it's awesome. Thank you. So uh, okay, we've got, we've got runners in time for one or two questions. In the back, is there a microphone in the back for the gentleman holding the, his hand up? All right, Teddy, you got a microphone coming to you? Just introduce yourself and ask the question. Hi, Teddy Hodges, creator of Brace Under and CEO. What's your recommendation for young CEOs, startup and leadership and developing talent around you? Yeah, so my recommendation around CEO leadership and building teams and developing talent around you. Um, the first thing is, you know, my philosophy, if that helps you, is I choose to do the things I do well often. I choose not to do the things I don't do so well at all. So you have to be very honest with yourself on what you're best at and also very humble about all the things that you don't know. And what I always tried to do is surround myself with people that were so much smarter than me and had a core competency in an area that I absolutely had to be the best at, but I knew I'd never get there. So I took the shortcut, just hired somebody that was so much better than me. And when you build a team with that philosophy and you set tone together, with a great vision and a very, very stra strong strategy that you don't have to constantly revisit and change. Just do it right the first time and then stick to it. Um, that team can do really amazing things. And the one thing I would say that you can never forget as a leader 
that trust is the ultimate human currency. The saddest thing I see going on all the time in boardrooms and with teams is the leader doesn't have the trust. And no trust, no future. And you don't get trust with people because you sell them out or you sell them short or you don't honestly communicate with them and you don't honestly tell them how you're seeing things or how you're feeling about things and then also take their candor in return and tell you how they're seeing things and how they're receiving things from you. And if you can build that, you change everything, change the world. Great question. Teddy, you got a book up here. We don't have time for any more questions, unfortunately, because our special guest is here. However, um, one of the things we do at Startup Health ad nauseum is focus on the biggest insights someone has from listening yeah. or participating in a meeting. We had another book. You can't ask a question, but you can say, if Bill McDermott today made you think something different or actually impacted you, I'm going to microphone and you're going to share it. So I'm going to ask for a volunteer. Uh, Jonathan Fight, uh, microphone right there. No question, just quick statement and biggest insight, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, biggest insight is I'm, I'm actually very curious now, given your personal experience in emergency health and whatnot, how I can find an angle to connect my, my organization with yours, um, because there's clearly a tie that might have been uh, under the table there. That's awesome. All right. That's awesome. You get a book, we need another insight. <laughs> One more insight. Jerry Levin up Jerry. front. Hey, who, Jerry. Jerry, uh, who's our chairman, former CEO of Time Warner, Jerry Levin, everybody. Well, the, the insight I got was the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have miles to go before I sleep. Ah, very nice. Very nice, Jerry. Jerry, I just have to say, you know, we had uh, Jerry at um, a CEO event. And of course, Stephen uh, Howard Crime was there. Your special guest was there. And I was just so moved by you, Jerry. I still think about it. And what I, what I learned from you is that to see a man that climbs to the top of the mountain and achieves it all, but recognizes in retrospect that the most important things are probably things that we can easily miss along the way. And one of the things that I say that I learned from Jerry is just to respect the journey because the journey in and of itself is such a blessing, such a reward. And the difference that we can make together is so unbelievable. And you were amazing. I'm still thinking about having you on stage in New York. It was amazing, Jerry. Good to see you again. Thank you. Um, Bill, thank you not just for today, but for being such a great friend of us, our community and army of entrepreneurs, your commitment, which I think everybody in this room can attest to is authentic. This is not just business as usual for SAP. Right. Um, how much you care is infectious and I think is inspiring <laughs> because as a leader of an organization like yours, it's very easy for you not to be. Of course. Um, but honored to not just have helped um, create this partnership foundation, but actually help transform healthcare together. And from all the entrepreneurs that are here, Thank you Thank for you, everything that you've done. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you all very much.